Welcome to Wisdom and Wonder, where we talk about the things you wonder about with curiosity and an open mind. I'm your host, Anne Jan, and today on the podcast, we have Professor Sikima to talk about Kuiper, beauty, and the life we're looking for. So, Dr. Sikima, you're uh, an assistant professor of English here at Redeemer and the Corps. Um, his research area is contemporary American literature. He is the editor at Common Magazine and a senior fellow at the Think Tank Cardis. So... Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Thanks, Anne, for having me. Uh, it's fun to interview someone who is also a friend. So Yeah, this feels so formal, but uh, it's, it's great. <laughs> I'm glad you're doing this. Okay, uh, we can just jump right into my first question, which is when I was researching your bio um, on your particular area of study, I noticed the word disenchanted came up a lot. Can how does that word relate to your research? It's in a lot of your titles of the things mm -hmm. that you've written. Can you kind of expand on that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so when you, I'm not disenchanted with research, but <laughs> it's uh, so disenchantment, the, the idea of disenchantment, yeah. um, I actually came across it when I was reading Charles Taylor, A Secular oh, Age. So Charles okay. Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, he wrote this massive book in 2007 called The Secular Age. Now, at the time, I was beginning my uh, PhD program, okay. Um, so the first part of your PhD program is just your courses, and then you do uh, your comprehensive exams. And I was right. right around my comprehensive exams, and I was making my prospectus, like what was going to be my project. And I was reading Charles Taylor uh, while working at Comment. And uh, under James K. Smith, he was the editor at the time, he was doing a whole issue called Cracks in the Secular. So he right. just challenged us to uh, sort of read his book. He wrote the kind of Cole's Notes it's called How Not to Be Secular. How oh, to be I secular. have heard of this. Yes, Dr. Jostra recommended this book to me. It's a great book. Yeah. And, and if you if you can't get through the massive, like, 1,200 pages of Taylor, mm. I'd really recommend Jamie's book because it's very readable and it's a good synthesis um, of it. Anyways, so it was while I was reading that yeah. uh, that it kind of gave me uh, some of the language I wanted to use for my project, which was what does it mean to kind of inhabit a secular age? And so Charles Taylor talks a lot about our social imaginary. And he says it's actually less about just the ideas that we explicitly hold on to, a worldview that we would like maybe articulate. But being in the secular age, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, we all inhabit this age. It gives us a kind of shared disposition, a shared set of uh, imaginaries. Um, and these come implicitly through the devices that we use, through the mm. things that we watch, through the stories that we tell. And they start to kind of form our sort of posture to the world. So the, right. the, the aspect of the secular age that, that fascinated me was disenchantment, which is the idea that we've sort of imagined the world to be something that's free of spirit, mm -hmm. something where God is not even sort of this deistic, detached being or power right. outside of the machine. Um, in like strict naturalism, he's, he's, he's gone. Mm. Now again, most Christians wouldn't subscribe to that. We believe in yeah. a God who is a creator. But to inhabit the, the secular age is to still imbibe, if you will, yeah. some of the kind of implicit hangovers of disenchantment. So I think of my own like writing of this, I think maybe some of the language I would, I would shift mm. now, like a few years out from the dissertation. Yeah is it's actually more about control than strict disenchantment. Mm. And I would say that, that part of our posture to the world that we've rendered kind of inert, like it's right. this dead mechanism that starts to have value when we use it, right? So a tree is valuable when I can 
We're recording? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> a tree becomes valuable, right, when I can when I can cut it and I can plane it into boards and I can use it, right? Right. So this is kind of utilitarian value. Right. Um, rather than sort of seeing the thing in itself as something that has a, a kind of intrinsic worth, um, right? Right. That we respond to, that we, we listen to. Um, so our posture in this kind of secular disenchanted age is we see the world outside of our head as a sort of dead and lifeless thing mm. that we want to control, we want to manipulate. And mm. we've largely been successful um, sort of in the Anthropocene moment. Do you think that it also, as you were saying this, the thing that kind of came to my mind was a, a sort of this idea of like consumption of the world outside of our minds. It's almost like something that we, we, th- like we think of as something to consume, to use, as opposed to almost enjoy like it, when you're saying this is like this dead thing that I can just take it's because it's dead it's not really do you know what I'm, I'm saying or is that again it's very implicit like I say to my students or when you pick up your your phone right this is actually shaping your soul it's shaping how you relate not just to others not just mm. yourself but to the natural world right so when we and I'm guilty of doing this, right? We get onto our phone, we go to Amazon, we buy a book. It's like we're marshalling vast amounts of resources, yeah, right, in ways that would be shocking to yeah. some of the greatest emperors in, in human history, right? And But again, so what does that actually mean for the natural world? Like, where does this stuff come from? Where does it go? What's happening with all of this stuff of the created world? And do we even care? So that act of shopping at Amazon has all kinds of ecological implications that most of us don't think about because, again, I think a lot of the forces of the modern world move us outside of a habit of perception that sees ourselves as creatures, Mm. right, that are deeply connected to soil, water, sunlight, uh, forces that are largely out of our control. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's really, that is an interest, that's very fascinating to me. Something, a mantra that I often tell myself when I have, I notice myself falling into like just overwork. I, I feel like a person who's like, let's just do it all. Yeah. Is I am not a machine. And, yeah. and to, to tell myself that because I think there's just such a, you know, we're, our culture is just driven to, to be productive and produ- however you want to define that. But it's sort of like what you can produce is your worth. And sometimes it's, yeah, and that's not the Christian worldview at all. But it's, it's such a fascinating the way that you frame that, right? Like, I am not a machine. And, and but so much, again, of, of it's kind of the post-industrial mm. logic that shapes so much of us. And now we're seeing this with especially digitization and AI. Yeah. Is that, like, can we actually compete with mm. the machines? And the machines have been made in our image, and now we're trying to make ourselves in their image. And even something as simple, <coughs> excuse me, as, like, electrical light, Right. Right. What does that do to the rhythms of work and time, mm. right? That, that getting up when the sun gets up, going to bed when the, yeah. the world gets dark, there's a kind of rhythm to that. Now we can presumably work 24-7, yeah. and some people do, right? So, yeah. so how do we, again, machines don't have the same kinds of human creaturely limits that we do. Yeah, yeah. but mm. honestly, um, it's, there's so many things that I could follow up with about that but I did want us to talk about um what so you're you're talking about this in your research but then you also just gave a lecture or a speech um at the Kuiper conference here Mm -hmm. at Redeemer about um 
Kuiper neo-Calvinism and that relationship with art. And so I kind of want to talk about how did these how do these things connect? So you're you're yeah. doing you know they're, they're not necessarily in the same vein, but what was the connection point for you? So I'll try to be really brief. <laughs> but so the disenchantment thing, just to kind of yeah. put a bow on that, uh, that was sort of the animating framework of my dissertation, uh, which is on contemporary American okay. literature, and disenchantment became a way that I could look at contemporary writers who are. I argue kind of like re-enchanting the world mm. or, or putting us into the kind of so a new social imaginary, one in which I don't think we can just go back to like a pre-modern enchantment. Mm. Right, um, right. Paul Ricoeur yeah. would say that's like kind of a first naivete of belief, but he says that fiction actually allows us to inhabit worlds where we can recover kind of like a second naivete. We can live kind of as if enchantment is still possible. And that's, I think that's actually one of the reasons why people love like J.R. Tolkien mm. or C.S. Lewis, right? There's a kind of interesting fantasy element right. for people who inhabit those worlds. It's like they're longing for something. Now, Tolkien and Lewis are both medievalists, both very fascinated with the pre-modern cosmos. Right. Um, and it, it actually filters all through their, their writing. So I wasn't looking at those writers. Uh, I was looking at Wendell Berry, Marilyn Robinson, and Christian Wyman. Okay. And... My fascination with them is that in their poetry, their essays, their novels, is they're giving us a kind of world that we can enter mm-hmm. where God is the like ongoing, sustaining presence of the real is still there. Okay, so that was my, uh, that was my <laughs> dissertation. Uh, a lot of fun to write, I think. <laughs> Glad it's over. Uh, and then I started teaching this course here at Redeemer, a core course called Understanding the World Through Art. Okay. And that's sort of where um, my current research is, is sort of taking the dissertation project, which is right. tied largely to literature. Right. And I want to broaden that out to like aesthetics more broadly okay. and look at the way that beauty um, is kind of recovering a, a more classical sense of what beauty is as like a transcendental, wakens us up to the real, right? Wakens us up to the world. So... Um, the short little talk I gave at the Kuiper conference a few weeks ago here, uh, which was called The Weight of Beauty, uh, The Glory of the Real, sort of takes some of Kuiper's ideas that he gave 100 years ago now in the Stone Lectures, where his fifth lecture was actually all about aesthetics. It was all about art. And one of the things that I just loved about uh, that lecture is that he actually uses glory as Mm. a kind of completion of beauty. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. So, so for Kuiper, um, the aesthetic like draws us. It, it draws us into the glory of the real, which has a kind of weightiness, a depth to it, right? It's not. It's never this call to be like gnostic, mm. where you say the real doesn't matter. We're basically getting through this veil of tears until right. we go to the new earth. Like this earth right now, actually is participating in beauty. Yeah. Right. Um, in a way that's actually important for us to kind of recover because, again, I think a lot of us in the modern age are, are very buffered from that or we have a pretty shallow conception of, of what the beautiful actually is. Okay, yeah, that is, that's very, that's really interesting. I, um, as you were, as you were talking about this, um, I, it, there's so many things that I find with, with these conversations. There's so many things that when a prof is saying something, it reminds me of something else. Or I'm like, oh, I read something that relates to this. So even for myself to kind of 
keep myself in check. It's hard. <laughs> but this is this is why again going all the way back to Plato, yeah. like dialogue matters. Yeah. Like it's, it's you 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 kind of learn through through exchange, right? So. Right. Yeah. Or it 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 like points you to to something yeah. to something else that you're like, oh, that that like sparks another question, which isn't that like I feel like this is why I've I've I really love doing this is because it's the questions, right? And yeah. you get to ask all these questions to people, <laughs> and I I am basically that is just my favorite thing. Yeah. So. Um, but I will, I, I wanted to push back a little bit about, um, the, those two intersections of, you know, if we think about Calvinism and art, those are not often things that are mm-hmm. put in the same sentence. Like even in your, your, uh, your lecture, you allude to the, the Dutch and, um, I said, I think I said, if, if you want to go to like, if you want to learn about yeah. fine cuisine, you don't go to the Dutch. Yeah. It's sort I of, I mean, they're, they're good for like wartime <laughs> meat and potatoes. <laughs> And I can, I can say this because, the, hey, they're my people. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what, like, what kind of, what is the, what kind of common mis- uh, misconceptions do you want to dispel? Because people kind of think about, okay, Calvinism and art, those things are almost like in their mind. It can be like diametrically opposed or that's kind of, I think, the, the generalization that people will make about this. Um, what, what kind of misconceptions do you think that you want to dispel or things that have been interesting to you as you've done research about these this relationship between these two things yeah and I should just preface this by saying like I am uh in no ways an expert on this so so I'm actually I I, I'm I'm just beginning like my deeper dive into like Calvinism and neo-Calvinism um so specifically what Calvin says about this and and I'll sort of use Kuiper I guess as the kind of starting point um one of the things that, that, that Kuiper sort of addresses is that, like, one of the Protestant legacies is being iconoclastic, mm-hmm. right? So so following the, the Reformation, there's these waves of iconoclasm mm-hmm. where you're going through, especially Roman Catholic churches, and you're smashing statues. You're um, defacing iconic images. Um, you're, 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 you're moving towards, a, and I would say not, like, no aesthetic, um, mm-hmm. contrary to what maybe Catholics or <laughs> Anglicans would say. But it's a very different logic of aesthetic. Right. And, and I would say the, the logic is one of austerity. Right. And so what you're getting, and this is kind of Kuiper's argument about the accomplishment of Calvinist aesthetics, if you want to call it that, is you're moving to a kind of purity of worship, a worship that's sort of freed of all the mediated baggage mm. of art. Right. Right. Now, he does say, but hey, Calvin also gave us like the Genevan Psalms, and he understood, uh, I would say, an importance of the imagination, the importance of beauty for the folk. Right. So what you're getting in the Genevan Psalms is a, simple tunes that can be sung by people in their vernacular language, which is really important, right? Right. Um, so I do think there's a kind of democratization that's happening, where art, and even the liturgy, is not just high class, right. educated people who speak Latin. Right. Um, it's actually spreading to the masses. This is why even like Martin Luther, like A Mighty Fortress of God is a beer song. Right. <laughs> translated into, or not translated, uh, but basically rewritten as a battle cry of the Reformation. And he's saying like, I can take this sort of quote unquote secular thing and it can be sanctified. Right. Like, and, and again, this I think right. is one of the great, Calvinist, neo-Calvinist impulses, which is that all of life can be sanctified. Right. There's not this kind of rarefied air of the church or the liturgy or art. It's actually like every aspect of life can be redirected 
towards uh, the worship of God. So, I, again, what Kuiper says, and I actually think I disagree with him on some of this, <laughs> yeah, is that one of the, the great accomplishments of, of Calvin, he puts a lot of like uh, this on Calvin, <clears throat> is that he separated the church from the aesthetic. Right. So the whole like rise of modern art that we have now is like thanks to Protestantism, <laughs> right? So, so, yeah. so uh, which is really fascinating. Um, I need to do more work. Uh, a little bit that I've read from Adrian Denning, Dengerink Chaplin, um, who's actually in Rob and Jess Jostra's uh, latest book, her essay, looks at this. She's a little bit skeptical too. She says like Kuiper's very uh, forthright about making these bold claims, but there's not yeah. a lot of research that went into it. Right. Um, so that that's an area that I think just needs a little bit more attention. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I yes. Um, for I think for my uh, Bacon philosophy class, we had to read this the book that you just mentioned. Oh, Calvinism for a secular age. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It it it, it's, it was really. Yeah. Don't you love when profs just uh, make you buy their books? <laughs> you know what? I do because I am interested in what they're interested in because this is like why I'm doing this, even this dialogue, because I think, well, I, like, you know, you get such a cursory level. Like I, yeah. you know, even with a prof, you will teach a subject and you don't actually know yeah. the other half of or even 60% of their job. <laughs> You're like, I have no idea. What, what are you doing? That's so, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you think you could sort of like summarize for people what the core tenets of Kuiper's view on the relationship between art um, and the world? Like what are his core ideas or what are some of the main points or thrusts of yeah, okay, his so, essay? So the main points of his essay is, is the way that he frames like the aesthetic or arts is actually all about common grace. Okay. So the one thing he wants to kind of like dispel... And I think we still kind of have this hangover, even like kind of the joke that I made in my talk and what you just mentioned, yeah. right? Is like, oh, what does Calvinism have to do with the arts? Right. And he looks, so this is like 400 years old and we're still kind of like rehashing this. Like we have this kind of almost anxiety about like, what have the Protestants done mm. for the arts or for the imagination? And I think part of this is because there are like whole Catholic conferences about the Catholic imagination right. um, because of their churches, their art, uh, their literature, their poetry. And it's undeniable that in, in some ways that the, the Catholic tradition has a much more pronounced, uh, if you will, influence on the art. So Kuiper is trying to like address that. Right. Um, so he frames, again, art within the, the realm of common grace. And he says, stop trying to find like a Calvinist art right. or a Calvinist aesthetic. Um because the beautiful is something that actually is manifest, yes, in Catholics, yes, in atheists, uh, in all kinds of pagan and Christian work, we can find traces of the beautiful. So for him, the, the one thing we have to realize is that beauty is not like the limited commodity mm. of like one tribe. So, right. so don't think about it that way. The other thing I think we kind of already talked about is Calvinist like liturgical art like, so art in the church, you're probably not going to find it there because one of the accomplishments was moving towards, like, an austere aesthetic, which right. is austerity in theology, which is the most simple, eloquent formulation of what the gospel is about, which is why even, like, those solas, like, faith, uh, salvation by faith alone, by right. grace alone, they're very beautiful in their simplicity. And the church itself, like, a Protestant church, is, like, sort of a manifestation of this. 
when you see a place like stripped of all decorations and there's just like a Bible up front. It's like the unadorned word of God. Right. There's a, perhaps a table for the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Right? Not an altar, but... Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, but it, it's very simple. Like, it's the word in the sacraments. And that is a kind of, of aesthetic. So uh, he wants to think about that as well. The other thing I, I think Kuiper's trying to address is particularly in his context, there's the rise of sort of aestheticism. Right. Um, so you have like Matthew Arnold, mm. Oscar Wilde. It's kind of beauty for beauty's sake. Mm. And there's a lot of Christians who are really sus- uh, suspicious of this because some of them are making claims that it's the aesthetic that's actually going to replace Christianity in the secular age. I mean, they're not using that language necessarily. Right, yeah. But as we're doing away with the kind of old traditional superstitions and we need something else to kind of humanize us, democratize us, it's going to be the arts. Now, a lot of them are making this claim, I would say, because a lot of the imagination is still like carrying with it a lot of the implications of Christendom or or a kind of Christian ethos. Um, I don't know post-World War I, definitely Depression post-World War II, if those sort of humanists and aestheticists would be making the kind of same bold claims about what art can do. So, Mm. So Kuiper's like aware of that, but he surprisingly doesn't go after it and say like, this is like a manifestation of the antithesis. Right. He actually says, this is really good. Art is actually becoming better because it exists for its sake and not for the sake of worship. So that we've actually freed up art to be in symphonies and galleries and these mm. like dedicated almost cathedrals to beauty, which is what a gallery kind of is. Right. That's actually really good. And I think that's actually where I disagree with him the most. And someone like Nick Walterstorff, who's in the tradition, yeah. but further down the line... Um, he takes a lot of uh, aims at, at that kind of sort of detached uh, viewing of capital B beauty. Is it almost like a sort of like you see echoes of like maybe Kant and his like sort of like, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that is really like fascinating to see. And it's interesting because I, I I like that you make distinctions about the people that you're reading and the places that you disagree because I think um, I often struggle with this concept even as a student not having enough knowledge about things I I'm like can I disagree with them or you kind of feel like you're like you're much you know they've read they're obviously very intelligent people and so I think sometimes when you're like what if for example I'll be writing a paper and then I'll be like should I disagree with what you're saying because you're Piper and I don't know anything compared to you which relatively so I think there's there's definitely a really good side to that which is there's I think a kind of like implicit humility (laughs) that's really good I I think there's a kind of like hey my prof is giving me this or this is someone that I've just heard about who's who's kind of a giant um so I think a bit of like humble reverence before what they're saying is, is, is a good yeah. posture to come to new stuff. But then I would also say if something seems provocative or you like make a margin note, I'm, I'm telling my students all the time, like I, I, I want you to disagree and then know why you disagree because I mean, my goodness, sometimes even Kuiper disagrees with himself. <laughs> Augustine definitely disagreed with himself. And the more you immerse yourself in some of these great thinkers, yeah, they're not static either. Right. right, their thought is is often evolving and changing, and it's a living thing. Right. Yes. I do. Yeah. That I like that reference to the living, mm-hmm. even though they're dead. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
so Kuiper seems to have this, like we talked about this, uh, sort of strong aversion to art being tied to the sacred. Do he argues sort of that confusion where art becomes worshipped as opposed to God himself. And so yeah. he kind of, he, he talks about that. Um, it's his view on spiritual worship. I guess I, this is where maybe I disagreed also. I wondered if his view on spiritual worship, if it's possible because we're beings who experience the world through our senses. And so yeah. I, I felt like when he was saying things like a spiritual worship, I was maybe struggling to know, A, what he meant, and then sort of B, if this is a possibility. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so that, that this is another one of these areas where I think it helps to know, like, so Kuiper again channeling Calvin, so mm, we're going back like yeah. kind of through intellectual telephone yeah. 400 years ago. In the context of the Reformation... One thing that they're they're kind of fighting against is a laity who is largely ignorant of what's happening mm. in the worship. Right. So they're getting um, sometimes mystery and morality plays, um, but the art is actually the thing that's educating them rather than the word of God. So one of the great accomplishments mm. of like someone like Luther, for instance, is like I'm going to read the Bible for myself, um, which he could because he was educated as right. could Calvin and the other reformers, um, but one of the first things they start doing is translating and saying, we need to have the Bible in German, right? right? People need to read it for themselves because what's happening when people aren't actually reading the word of God, they're being educated by these other things. So, so the media, if you will, like or mm, the art right. is the thing that's actually like where their focus is on. And I would argue like 400 years later, there's arguably similar things happening. We're not illiterate. We're like illiterate. And what's happening to a, a church body that's not steeped in the word, not reading? Like, well, you're going to get your education, your catechesis somewhere else. Right. So Kuiper, I think, just responding to that reality is very suspicious mm, okay. of how art can misdirect. Now, there's also something that's very important about the aesthetic for spiritual worship. And if you read Kuiper's lecture, it almost seems like he's kind of giving a green light to like a very like intellectualist disembodied mm, yes. excarnational kind of worship yes, where I it's like, right. And, and, and so it's like, and I know this from being in like Dutch reformed churches where it's like the highest form of like religious experience is like intellectual ascent where we kind of nod our heads and go, yes, that's good doctrine. Mm. And I'm not opposed to like yeah. good doctrine, but doctrine still has to be sort of manifested in physical things. Right, and those physical things can be used as vehicles to true worship. I mean, at right. a very basic level, I, I think like wine and bread, right? The the, the, yeah. the elements of the sacrament are symbolic, right? Yeah. They're, they're a picture. They're pointing us to a greater truth. Right. Um, how did Christ preach? Images, metaphor, right. right? There's something very aesthetic and artistic and symbolic about how he communicates. So. Um, yeah, I, I, to your question, I, I do see there's a, this kind of hesitance in his, uh, yeah. lecture yeah, I felt <laughs> to give same. us freedom, right. To have art in church. Um, yeah. anyway. Yeah. And I, I guess as a person who appreciates, um, I, I do feel like I would appreciate art more in church. I think I was like, mm, I don't know if I agree with you on this point. Um, so that's why I was kind of querying that. Uh, well, but I think we've like. And you probably, if you've worshipped in like 
an Anglican church or yeah. like you've been in some of these spaces, like even the space itself, it yeah. does something to you. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think any space can be sanctified. I think yeah. that, that's a good neo-Calvinist impulse. But sometimes I do feel like Protestants have ignored, like even space, yeah, to our detriment. Um, that it, it doesn't matter. Hey, if we're like in a in a theater or a bar, yeah. it's like this can be church too. And yes, it can. Yeah. But what kind of like how yeah. does the space actually work uh, on you? to be conducive to getting to the right, like, posture of worship. Right. Um, and, and those spaces actually do something to you. And I, I sometimes I just think we don't pay attention to it. Yeah, and I yeah I, I would agree. I think there's, like, a, a place where you can kind of, like, when I have gone and, you know, I was in Italy and you go into all these really beautiful old cathedrals. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing. And there is a sense of... Uh, who God is and who you are, that I think in in this democratization, Protestantism can kind of be like, we're on the same level as God. Not that anyone would say this, but almost in a way we have like, you think about the music, the songs, it, it's almost like, and and I agree that we can really experience Jesus through his humanity. And But I do sometimes think that mysterious element of like, God is... God and we are just like these little tiny beings that he created but look at the universe that he made like he made that so think about how much grander he is like it it, it gets lost in this yeah I, well that, and that, that's where beauty is really interesting so I'm reading um a lot of DC Schindler right now who's a, a Catholic philosopher who's absolutely amazing and his book uh love and the postmodern predicament I just highly recommend okay but he's giving me a really helpful language for exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. This kind of paradox that's always in beauty, right? There's the ineffable mm. and then the incarnational. Sorry. Okay. Um, so it's like God is the name that cannot be expressed. Right. But then he also says, like, I'm your father. Right. I'm your shepherd. Here's a bunch of symbols to hold on to. And I'm going to condescend to you so that I'm intelligible right. to you. Yeah. Right. Um, so God is. There's a holiness to him that's just... He's not part of this creation, the right. way we are. But there's this unbelievable love that makes itself known to us as creatures. Um, and, and I think worship has to hold those things in tension. And so, so what D.C. Schindler says is, like, beauty is a longing that's never satisfied. Mm-hmm. But it's complete in itself as the longing. So... so when even when we want something as basic as food because we're hungry. Right. Like that's actually just tied deeply into the reality of who God is. Right? So that physical hunger yeah. is just a kind of metaphor for the, just the, the, the much greater hunger we have mm. for our completion in the source of all food, of all creation, which is the triune God. Right. Oh, that's really beautiful. Um, now I want a, <laughs> another book that I need to buy. Yeah, but I, mean, I will not I'm, buy I'm, it off Amazon, Doug. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's good. Yeah, go to go to Byron Borger or yeah. uh, Hearts and Minds. Yeah. Um, so one of the main points in your lecture is that if we're going to get into more of like the artist's role, um, in terms of if we take, yeah, what their sort of role is. Um, is not just mere imitation, but you write, but to discover in those natural forms the order of the beautiful and enriched by this higher knowledge to produce a beautiful world that trans- transcends the beautiful nature. Can you uh, sort of elaborate for me on this point? Because I feel like this was 
a pretty crucial point in your uh, yeah. essay. Yeah, and that's a, it's actually really interesting because Kuiper, as a Calvinist, is channeling a classical tradition that's shared by the Catholics. So again, even someone like D.C. Schindler talks a lot about this. Um, so one of the things that's kind of happening in the postmodern moment is that we see something like beauty as a kind of subjective mm. feeling. It's like, oh, I, mm. I find that beautiful, but you might not, right? So beauty as a kind of subjective yeah. taste, and we've all heard like yeah. the beauty is in the eye <laughs> of the beholder, um, right? Which is true to a degree, but, yeah. but what that ignores is that beauty is actually an objective reality. To use the language of the medieval world, it's a transcendental. So beauty, okay. truth, and goodness are actually tied to all of reality because they're tied to the creator God who is true, good, and beautiful, right? So, so these, are, these are aspects that are essential not just to the creaturely world, but to the invisible mm. um, being, if you will, of God. So one of the things that Kuiper's arguing, and, and, and this is the tradition that I'm, I'm really fascinated by, is we can't accept that beauty is actually just relative, because it's not. Mm. Beauty is actually intrinsically, inherently an aspect of the given, real, physical world. And what that means is that beauty is actually what gives kind of formal boundedness to the things that we apprehend. So let's just take a tree, for example. Okay. Um, and this is the, the, the medievals used the language of unity, clarity, or sort of unity, integrity, clarity, or unitas, integritas, claritas. What they meant by this was that, that I could see that the tree is actually like separate from other things that are not part of that tree. It's made right. up of leaves, uh, like a, a stalk, different branches, right? Yeah. Um, and then we could get into like the play of light on it. Right. And if we sat here long enough, we could actually look at it over the course of a year and over the course of its life. Right. It's unfolding itself through time. Right. Right. So there's all these different parts that are working together. That's the kind of integrity of the whole. So the unity of this thing is made up of many different parts that become one thing. There's a kind of a tree here that has a, a formal quality mm. to it. And the, f the unity and the integrity become something larger than just themselves when we apprehend them. And this, again, is the idea of, mm. of the beautiful. Right. So those things actually expand in meaning. And that's the clarity. So... In the medieval imagination, and this is what I think Kuiper is referring to and, and D.C. Schindler is like recovering, is actually point beyond themselves. And this is where I, I find talking about aesthetics in a secular age is really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> because you either believe in an invisible reality or you don't. Right. So if you don't, and we, like, let's use Charles Taylor's language, we're, we're strictly in the imminent frame. Right, This is right. strict materialism, mm -hmm. right? So that that tree can only point to itself. It's, it's just a tree, right? It's just a, a collection of atoms. It's kind of working. It will rise and it will die. That's it. If you do believe there's an invisible realm, if you do believe, as I do, yeah. that God is literally upholding this thing every single moment by his attention and that that first, like, let there be right. of Genesis is actually going on right now, holding us and the tree, the thing that we're observing, all. It's holding all of this up. It's mm. giving it its ontological reality then that tree is not just a tree it is but it's also pointing beyond itself and that's what the medievals would say is clarity 
so that the unity, the integrity point to a reality that's greater than it, but it's also invisible. And every encounter with the real should, if we're, we're perceptive, wake us up to the God who's behind it, upholding it. And this gets into all kinds mm-hmm. of other problems we have, even around truth and goodness. How yeah. we've, we've kind of, in the modern world, made all of these things only things that go on within our head. So that the self, the ego, mm. become the kind of arbiters of reality. And this, again, the postmodern yeah. moment is a really interesting moment where, like, beauty, not just beauty, but truth and goodness are projections of the self onto, mm. again, an inert, disenchanted world. Yeah. If you recover, I think, the Christian notion of what the creation is, yeah. we're not just projecting onto this thing. We're actually responsive to it because it's the creative reality or summons or language of of god right so those real things are are actually uh drawing us to them there's a kind of erotics if you will right to aesthetics yeah that it's like and when and i ask my students this all the time like think about a moment where you saw something beautiful and and a lot of them have this moment where it's like we're, we're we have this like arrested attention yeah it stops us in our tracks it feels like time stops and we're drawn out of ourselves. And uh, I think that's, that's what really fascinates me is that beauty has this, this ability to get us out of our head and into the world of the real. That's, I, and I think this, maybe to, to maybe this is how I would maybe add on to this. If I think about from, from a, as a Christian, we have that to such an even more intense degree because of the fact that like when Jesus came and then um, went back, he said, and, and even in this, in the Lord's Prayer, like, on earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. Like, there is this connection point. This isn't, like, heaven's up there, earth's down. Like, yeah. and, and this is, you know, there's this connection. The veil has been ripped, in, yes. if you want to talk about it in that way. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so I think as Christians, we have, you know, to live into this even more fully than anyone else because yeah. it's like we really even more so because of like Christ, what Christ has done. Yeah, yeah and it, exactly. And I, and I think like your will be done on earth as it is in, he- as it is in heaven right now. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Um, and, so, so, and, and this is, again, what I love about the best of the Christian tradition, but I think specifically in the kind of neo-Calvinist reform tradition is like heaven is like the, the reality of the new earth can like we can get glimpses of it right now. Yeah. Right. By faithful work. Um, uh, it, it's not like we're waiting for this perfectly beautiful new reality to descend. Yeah. Um, it starts right now. Yeah. And I think that sometimes people can kind of have that in Christianity. Like it's going to, you know, come <coughs> later. All the good things will come later. And, and you know, in some ways I think it's a way to maybe, you yeah. know, not have to work as hard or yeah. to think about what really needs to happen or, or to see the injustice in the world and be like, oh, yeah. you know what, we should actually... And I wouldn't say, like, I wouldn't say very many strong Christians have this <laughs> belief, but it, you can even sort of see it in your, in just in sort of church cultures and things mm-hmm. like that, where it can be kind of like, you know, this whole, you know, the new heavens and the earth, the, this world, earth is going to burn and, you know, yeah. it, there's going to be a new and better one coming after you die. Like, it's just kind of like... Yeah, and I think what, what, what shocked me about, like, Kuiper is just the enthusiasm he has for beauty. And he's just yeah. like, God could have punished us with an ugly world. It could have been a place where we're always depressed. Like, it's always like, 
yeah. Canada in March or something, right? <laughs> like, it, but it's but it's like even now as I look out the window, yeah. it's like, what a gift yeah. that it's like sunshine, blue skies, and he's like, yeah. do we realize like this is he he used a word that that Augustine uses? It's a consolation prize. Yeah, and he says that. And, and consolation is like not just a prize that goes to the losers, which is what we are after the fall. It's also to console us mm. in our brokenness and our fallenness. And yeah. it's like, and if you're really awake to beauty, it's like you realize that even in our rebellion, God is still overflowing for us, for everybody, not just Christians, like everybody. They get to see a world that is enchanting. Right. Right. And it can stop you in your tracks. And it always surprises you. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's like, it didn't have to be this way. But yeah. it is. And so, like, how do we wake ourselves up to that, right? Because we're so quick to forget it. Yeah, I know. And I do think that it's, for me, you know, actually going outside. And it's amazing yeah. how I feel like you can, in your world, like, not go outside. You know, it's just like you go to your car to get to your next meeting, to do your next thing. Yeah. And, and you can spend so much of your time just in your own house. And even on beautiful days, and you're like, this is... So I think this might be a question yeah. we ask later, but that, that, that literally, like, those yeah. forces is, is precisely why I'm interested in this. Because it's, mm. it's, it's our cars, it's our highways, it's yeah. our houses, it's how we, how we build our lives together. And then I think sort of digital technologies have, like, ramped this up. Yeah. Um, and I'd say all of them are kind of modern forces that move us towards the egocentric ideal, which is that if the self is absolute, then then... Like, we're finding ourselves increasingly put into spaces where it's just, I'm alone with my ego. Mm. Like, right? So even, like, shopping, I can do it with my device by myself. And, that, like, yeah. you're going to bring it to me, but I can stay right here. I think COVID has kind of, like, ramped this up even more. Right. But these are all forces that are, I think, drawing us away from the real and into kind of mediated buffered places of loneliness. Right. Um, right. So, so this is not just about like kind of recovering good, like ecological postures, even though it is that, I think it's like political, it's theological, yeah. it's social. Um, and I, I, I do feel like one of the most important aspects about living in the kind of current moment is that Christians need a better theology and practice around resisting some of the forces of modernity that are right. not just intellectual, they're, they're actually like physically manifested in the things that we make. And, and I think having better resources to kind of resist those when we need to resist them. Yeah. No, the, I, think that's, I think that's so fascinating. I think especially with when you were talking about like the loneliness piece and the isolation, mm-hmm. right? Like we as people are so built for community. And when you think about in terms of even like um, even in my knowing about sort of like forms of abuse, um, mm. They talk about how if someone is in an abusive situation, the number one thing that they will do is isolate this person so they feel alone, so that they can't do anything. And so I think, like, what's happening in our culture that we're all going to get to this point where we don't need each other and we're going to feel so lonely? And you, you think and we have, like, Stockholm Syndrome yeah. with Zuckerberg, right? Like, I know. It, 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 it's, it's like yeah. there is this kind of, like, Elon Musk... Like Twitter, Facebook, these things—they yeah. don't—they don't care about us. No, they don't. I think the lie is, they do. Right. And we go to these places, but it's like they—they they do want us isolated. Right. Um, so, yeah. I, Forever I think, scrolling, you know, doom scrolling as 
called. Yeah, yeah, doom scrolling. Like uh, Matthew Crawford in his book, The World Beyond Your Head, he's really yeah. good on this because he says the logic is actually the logic of Vegas has now been amplified to all of mm. us, which is the logic of the, the slot machine, which is somebody who is um, not moving. Right. They're pulling a mindless uh, mechanism yeah. with the hope of being surprised by money and they're usually wearing like adult diapers. They're like, it's like, it's the basest form of. He, I want to be careful with the language. Like, I don't want to say like they're, they're like it's animalistic, but it's actually like dehumanizing us. Like mm. we lose our humanity through that. And I say it to my students too. When you see yourself, and even myself, like doom scrolling or just scrolling, yeah. and it's this kind of like dopamine hit yeah. again, 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 and you're not moving. I think what's interesting is about the opposite of aesthetic is anesthetic. Mm. And what does an anesthetic do? It deadens movement. Right. Like, so you don't feel anything. And to me, it's like, are we aware of how these devices are kind of like large-scale anesthetics oh. that, are, that, are, that are dehumanizing us? Mm. And uh, I feel like we just have to... <laughs> I know, as we make ourselves into the, you know, it's funny how we always Mm -hmm. think about, like, the effect the machines have on us. Like, like, right, we're making the machine, but the machine is also making us. It's a two-way relationship that I think we don't really, people don't pause to think about. And I think, actually, as as I was reading up on even some AI stuff Mm -hmm. recently, um, you know, people are sounding the alarm. It's just like Stephen Hawking came out to say, basically, like, this is going to be so horrible. It's yeah, equivalent yeah. to, like, nuclear war, the levels of what this could do oh, to I society. I'm, I'm rewatching all the Terminator movies just so I'm ready. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like, who am I going to... What's going to happen if there is apocalypse? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think... We can maybe go into some of your, like, some of your yeah. interest in sort of, like, the Andy Crouch book, because you recommended the mm-hmm. Andy Crouch book, yes. uh, The Life We're Looking For, um, for for our discussion today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so he sort of, like, talks a lot about all of these concepts in this book, um, mm-hmm. if someone wants to read it, and it's a very, <laughs> <laughs> I will give a shameless plug to Andy Crouch any day. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah, so, basically... I kind of want to, uh, like, for us to sort of think through, we were talking about these ideas. Mm-hmm. What, how can we, as Christians, as, you know, as students, combat this? Or what are some ways that we can resist? Like, he talks about them in his book, but if you could maybe, like... Yeah. What's interesting about, like, his book is that he kind of starts with, I think, the question that we all need to start with, which is, like, what is a human? Mm. What is a human? Yeah. And and there's so many different answers to that. I'm, I'm doing... Uh, some interesting reading right now on, like, transhumanism. Okay. They have some interesting ideas about what it yeah. means to be human, and, like, a human wed to AI and technology becomes a kind of, like, Nietzschean ubermensch, like a superman. Right. Um, is that our vision of a human? So what Crouch does, and I, I know you're aware of this, right? he yeah. goes to the Old Testament and he says, what do we learn about our humanity? What kind of anthropology is, like, biblical? And uh, he says, well, we're minds, yes, but we're not just minds. We're also bodies and souls, right? So, so we have an intellect, yeah. we have appetites, we have a physical body. And every time we use anything, I think you were saying this before, right? We make our tools and our tools make us. Yeah. It's an insight from like Ivan Illich, uh, Martin, Heidegger, Martin Heidegger. Like this idea is that are we aware of how we're being made mm. by the things that we've made? And do they amplify our humanity, right? Or do they detract from it? And and 
it's interesting because it's like, hey, I drove here. I yeah. like driving. But uh, what happens in a culture, yeah. uh, and again, it's relatively new, where we have vehicles to drive ourselves around, yeah. where that's our main mode of mobility, right? So it changes our relationship to space. It changes yeah. our relationship to the world. Um, and then it even does something in my body. If all I do is drive to get around, yeah. my physical body starts to atrophy <laughs> because all I'm doing is pressing a little foot, which is, again, it's an amazing kind of power. Right. And I think yeah. there's a crouch says, right? It's like what we want yeah. is effortless power. Right. And it's a little motion of my foot <laughs> and I'm flying at like 120 kilometers an hour uh, yeah. down the highway. Right. So, and it's not to knock that. It's just yeah. to say like, but are you also walking, running, biking? Yeah. And each of those is a different kind of mode of being, a mode of perception. Yeah. And it does different things. Um, right? Like yesterday I biked to Redeemer. And I got here. It was like a 45-minute bike ride. And I'm like sweaty and gross. And But it also like sharpens you. Like it, yeah. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, this is kind of what we're made for. Yeah. And of course, you can... I, you can drive, and I do drive, and especially when it's winter, I do not want to <laughs> not biking. biking. But again, like, how do we kind of forget yeah. that we're, we're bodies? Yeah. Um, so, the, and, and this, I've been thinking a lot about this because of the AI question, mm-hmm. um, is we've actually accepted for so long that machines can kind of free us from the constraints of our body. And the body sort of negatively figured as this thing that kind of gets in the way. Mm, a narcissism almost. Is there's almost yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's almost like we, we put up all this fight about AI because, well, what is AI doing? Artificial intelligence. Yeah. It's actually going after the thing that we still believe is making us fundamentally human, which is our intellect. Right. And I have, I have huge problems with AI. Um, but is it any worse or why is it worse mm. than the way that we've given short shrift to physical bodies, right? Uh, and, and we allow technology to um, kind of replace the, the, the functioning of, of, like, human work, right? And if you think of, like, automation is well before AI. Yeah. And we've made so many workers and people redundant hmm. because of machines, <laughs> Yeah. right? Um, and I know people have resisted that too. Um, but now that it's coming after the mind... I think it's interesting to just see what our kind of latent anthropology is. So why I like Andy Crouch is that he says we have to hold all of those as Christians because we're body, uh, I'm going to butcher this line, but what does he say? Body, soul, mind, complexes made for love. Right, yes. He does focus that love is the big, like Mm -hmm. that is what is the driving force of what he argues is to be human. Exactly. Which I think is really fascinating because... um, I don't think that way. I read that and I thought, yeah, you're right. But I don't, it was, it was a good wake up call to think like, how am I, do I think about the, the, like, even as a student, do I think about the, the work that I do as some sort of like embodying love? Like I I don't. So this is the thing, and this is the thing, again, DC Schindler's really good on this because it's all about what's the little subtitle of his book. Uh, Rediscovering the real and beauty, goodness and truth. Oh, sorry, love and the postmodern yeah. predicament, right? Yeah. So, But again, love can quickly fall into the same kind of problem that beauty can in a postmodern mm. paradigm, yeah. which is that love is a kind of subjective emotional feeling. Yeah. Um, but I think that like a real Christian version of love is it's actually an encounter with something that brings friction into our life, right? Yeah. So when you, whether you encounter the real like friction on a bike, yeah. it's like this is a lot more effort 
yes. to do this, but it's actually better for me. Yeah. Right? Versus like hitting my pedal and my car just flies down the road. Um, so the bike brings friction. Um, Facebook friends. Yeah. I can like follow them, ghost them, d- d- whatever. <laughs> yeah. as a, but it's a frictionless kind of relationship. Yeah. But if you deal with real people and you have real relationships, <laughs> it's like it's yeah. friction. And right? It, it's yeah. like people are messy. Um, yeah. They're sinners. They're they're annoying. Uh, right? <laughs> and but but so so when God says like go and love your neighbor yeah it's not because your neighbor's lovable all the time my goodness we're not lovable all the time yeah it's like when christ comes and loves us he ends up on a cross and that is the kind of like life filled with friction that i think is like real love yeah like a love of something that's like truly other not just something like made in our own the image of our ego right uh and, and yeah yeah yeah, it, it, it just, like, it was an interesting shift to think about, like, the different things that I do in my life. And it, I think as a parent, mm-hmm. it's easier to, to maybe see that connection than actually as a mm-hmm. student. Because a student feels mm-hmm. like, if I do the work, I'm going to get a good mark, and this is a check on my little Well, so, but here's the thing, like, because we're, we're talking about this right now with, with AI, right? Right. And, like, how many students are using AI? I don't think I, I fully want to know. But, like, you don't chat... want to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, but ChatGPT, like, what is it offering you? A kind mm-hmm. of shortcut, like yeah. it's saying, here's a frictionless way to write a paper, and you know maybe it will go undetected. Yeah. Maybe you'll get a great mark. Maybe your paper will say all the right things. Right. But like, have you become more human? Mm. Have you actually sweat and gone through books and done that kind of friction-filled work that is research? Yeah. Which is, to be honest, it can be boring. It can be unfruitful. It can be exhausting. And then you have this surprising moment where it's like, oh. This is what I've been looking for. Right. Right. And there's a kind of like, it's so cliche, but like the beauty of the process, the beauty yeah. of the journey that I think, again, something like AI is just an amplification of what we're doing all the time. Right. Because we kind of want this shortcut. And then the question is, yeah, <laughs> shortcut, should I have, speaking of appetites. I guess. I don't think I ate breakfast. This yeah. is... <laughs> uh, right. But we, we want a shortcut and then yeah. to what? Yeah. Like to what? Like what are we racing towards when we're like... It's more time to spend on our doom scroll. Like, <laughs> yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I actually was thinking, actually, last night I wrote a whole little, like, uh, piece about, like, why why you shouldn't use AI. As, mm. a, a sort of from the student perspective and kind of, like, just some ideas. I was like, oh, I'm feeling really inspired about this. So I'm just going to write some stuff down. Oh, great. Um, and it was, t- it was sort of, like, the it takes a lot of, the two things I think it takes is a lot of courage because it takes courage to face your fears. And I think the reason mm. why students use AI mm-hmm. is it's the fear of failure. It's the fear, which is like, I don't, yeah. you know, I'm scared that I'll write this and my words yeah. won't impact and I, it won't yeah. be good and I will I'll get this negative mark and, mm-hmm. you know, I maybe won't get into my master's program. And like whatever people are, yeah. that, that the fear, it's like, so I think you have to have the courage to sort of resist that fear of being like, Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm scared of those things too, but also yeah. why am I being educated? Like, I think you go back to the telos of it. Like, why am I here? Isn't so that, you know, you're my professor and you give me an A plus on something. I feel mm-hmm. good for, you know, 20 yeah. minutes and yeah. then, you know, the next thing I have to do, like there's another paper, right? It's like when I leave here, no one's going to remember if I got an A or I didn't unless maybe like, and even it's, it's not about the mark. It's about the knowledge. It's about how I am being formed and how I am like these people yes. that have yeah. written these works and now how it's changing my mind and how I'm going to view the world. 
and I think, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think like that's the the thing that I think a lot of students are missing because I think we've also lost the script and what education and even university is for. Yeah. Like, people ask me that all the time, like, "What are you gonna do when you're done?" And I'm like, yeah. "Well, number one, mm-hmm. it's a while away because I'm doing it part time." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. but it's also like I, I don't know. I haven't fully formed out my full idea. Yeah. And it's expensive, and people are like, "Well, you need to have a great plan." When and I get all those concerns. But I also think like university isn't about when I graduate, I'm going to get X job and like, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's just not. I don't think that's it's never been that. And I think when people try to make it that it just mm-hmm. you're, you're not here for the wrong reasons almost. Absolutely. Preach it. Yeah. So, I, yeah. And so two things. Like, one thing is really helpful is that you, you yeah. framed it as like fear. And I think it's easy to to fall into like, oh, students use this because they're lazy. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to discount that entirely. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think that's a, that's a really good point that the reason they're doing it is because they have this image. Again, I think it ties to what Crouch talks about, like effortless yeah. power. Yeah. Um, right. So to write a really great paper, like it comes with a lot of effort. Yeah. And anybody who's a good writer, um, there's so much time that goes on perfecting that craft yeah. that is painful like yeah. it's getting edited and doing revisions and and I tell my students all the time like I write essays and I'm like here's a copy of an essay I sent to an editor at Image and like the entire thing was read and and ripped apart and I'm like at a certain point I'm like oh like that it hurts like it hurts my pride it hurts yeah. um, <clears throat> I'm a little bit afraid of, of of getting that but then after I'm like they do this because they care. Yeah. And if I care about this craft, I'm going to go back. And I'm going to try it again. Yeah. I try it again. And like, again, they, the word essay, right? It comes from an attempt. It's a try. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think, I think sometimes we're, we're afraid of that failure because we do live in a world. And again, I think it's amplified by the social media that wasn't even around when I was an undergrad, Yeah. which is showing all these people that have like perfect bodies, perfect yeah. jobs, perfect gardens, per- whatever. Um, as if they just arrived. Yeah. And it kind of gives you the surface thing, and it doesn't show you the, the reality of it. Um, I use sports analogies all the time in my class, but, like, if you watch, like, NBA, yeah. uh, like, LeBron James, Steph Curry, whatever, like, yeah. the reason they can do that for, like, the 40 or 24 minutes that you're watching them, or 48 minutes, sorry, is because there's, like, thousands of hours right. of really boring, repetitive drilling that's going into it. Yeah. So, as a student right now, like, no one is expecting you to write the perfect paper. Right. Right. Uh, they're expecting you to like start the process and learn how that process works. Like, so training your muscles and like, yeah, if, if you have a workout video and you just yeah. like, watch it and you don't actually work out, like, yeah. what's the point? And that's a, so when people come here and they're like, oh, I want to learn, but you're like using AI. Yeah. Like what, what's the point? Yeah. So the second thing you said though was like, what's the point of this? Like, it seems like education's useless. Yeah. And like, that's actually where I, I do feel like, again, like going to aesthetics is really important, right? Yeah. Like, why did God make the world? Like, why, why did he make this world? Yeah. It, it's largely useless. It's for him to enjoy. Yeah. And for us to enjoy. And uh, I don't know, the best advice I ever got about university was from my dad who just said, go and study what you love. Mm. and the use of it will become apparent to you through the course of your life. But yeah. study yeah. what you love and, and, and join those conversations. Yeah, I guess maybe as we sort of like wrap up, we think if we're talking about mm. AI technology and um, what advice would you give students? I think there's two things that people are, as a person who's like facing this, as, as a person who likes to write, a person who is interested in 
in creativity um, and feeling mm -hmm. like, oh, great, a robot is going to be taking over my job just as I graduate. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I think people are genuinely worried about that, I think, number one. Um, and then I, but I also think, like, what advice should you give people as they are doing their undergrad, as they are change, facing this changing landscape? Like, if you think, if there's a takeaway point that you think, wow, like, I want my students to know this about, about art, what they should, something they should read, or, or some sort of piece of advice you could offer. Yeah, so, my advice is, like, think about what it means to be human. Okay. Right? And avoid those things that detract from that. This year, we challenged the students in CTS to sort of adopt a counter-liturgical practice in the sort of digital age. And I had a lot of students who just like left Instagram, Facebook, or whatever, mm. for four months. And there were students who were literally in tears saying like what it meant to them to free them up of the kind of fear-ridden, anxiety-laced world that is social media. Mm. Because those things do not care about them. Yeah. They don't love them. And they give you the kind of illusion, like I think every idol does. It's like, this is the way to flourishing, and it's not. Like, right. and, and so what, it, what it's actually doing is it's promising, your, promising you a full humanity and then taking that humanity away. So I think pay attention to those things in your life. They're not benign. They're actually more formative on you probably than even your education here. Yeah. Um, so I'd say resist those things. Um, free yourselves of them. Um, and you can do it. And yeah. it might be hard for some people, but you can do it. And then the other thing is about, like, is AI going to take future jobs and things like that? I don't think any of us fully know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic, though, that, like, what we're getting with artificial intelligence is not intelligence. Yeah. Um, so it will do certain things fine. Yeah. Um, like, there's, there's probably actually good uses to some, some parts of AI. It can never replace the human soul. Yeah. Like that, 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 because again, I think if you believe in an invisible reality and that we are image bearers of the creator God, like yeah. there are parts of our humanity that it just is in, incapable of replacing. Yeah. So I think find time to be alone, read books, read slowly. <laughs> read deeply. Uh, and I think to your point, like don't be afraid to fail. Yeah. Anybody who's anybody in this world has failed and failed and failed. Yeah. And uh, I, I honestly wish we could do away with grades. I, I do think like assessment okay. grades uh, <laughs> is is a huge problem because it, it it took me way too long to realize learning is not about a, a, a quantitative value. Yeah, um, it doesn't matter. So this is an idea that I was thinking about, and maybe you mm -hmm. obviously uh, professors have their own what they have to do. But I I honestly think that what would be so helpful as a student is like if someone if especially in my English class if my English professor let me write an essay and then let me rewrite that essay. Like, I yeah. just wish that they would let me do this because that's like sometimes... It's like, a scale issue. Like, yeah. as someone who, who spent a lot of time marking last month... It's I, a scale, so... I, it's, it's hard to do, but I, I know Dr. Bowen has done it. Um, so, I, I would feel like that would be so helpful yeah. for me. And I, I think it's been done. Um, yeah. Yeah, to, to say, like, here's a... Like, the first try is a it's kind of a trial and then... When you rewrite it, there's like a new grade or we'll just look at that grade. Um, yeah, yeah, to just sort of, yeah. because I think that is really how you get better as a writer is oh, rewriting. Yeah. And, you know, you, and the other thing is, I think there's not really necessarily a good community aspect because I was actually, mm. when Dr. Jules was talking, he talked about how writing is a communal thing, yes. right? It's, and, but I'm as a student being like, well, you know, I'm asking someone else to, 
to read it, but people are very nervous. I've noticed. Yeah. Like my none of the I was like, oh hey, let's read each other's work. Nobody was on board yeah, for doing that. Yeah, it's weird. I know. I had that in my and I too. And was like, yeah. oh, like, but how will I become better? How will I like? Yeah. I will. I know that I have mistakes in this, and I'm fine that you will know my mistakes or yeah. that. So I was. I use the example of again a sports. Like, yeah. how do athletes become really good? They do. They practice together. It's it's a yeah. like Matthew Crawford calls it like an ecology of attention. Good yeah. artists, like they're in writing circles. They're yeah. they're, they're sharpening each other. Um, and I do think we kind of have this, I don't know where it came from, but like the idea that the scholar is, well, John Adams said it, made alone and sober, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, so I think, yes, the sober part's yeah. good. Uh, but the solitude, I don't think it necessarily has to happen. There's yeah. going to be a lot of work that, like, reading is a solitary yeah. activity. Um, but certain parts of, like, sharpening our research, um, even maybe doing questions together where we're all looking at the same thing and then, like, how do we think about this? Learning should be communal. It should be social. Um, yeah. You, you need that. Yeah. I think, again, it's part of, like, creaturely life is we're made for, uh, we're social creatures. We're social animals. Yeah. And, our, and our, we thrive in those environments. So. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Wonder. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check back for new episodes every week and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, always stay curious.